0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Okay, open a Bible to John's Gospel. Towards the very end of it... It's going to be John chapter 21, and I'm going to ask Miss Olivia to come up and read for us.
1: Okay, John 21, 1 to 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing they said to him we are going with you also they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing but when the morning had now come Jesus stood on the shore yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus then Jesus said to them children have you any food they answered him no and he said to them cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, uh, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me.
0: You know, as a human being, I deal with insecurities and fears that have a tendency to make it really difficult and costly for me to engage with people rather than to do what almost feels natural because of those insecurities and fears, which is to withdraw. In addition to being a human being, though, I'm also an introvert. Which means that my natural pull, especially when I'm worn out, is to withdraw from people because the kind of the, the running theme for me of things that help recharge my batteries or refill my tank are that they all are things that I typically do alone, like reading or running or surfing. So it's not just me being a human being, but even me being an introvert, but I'll also tell you as a man, as a male, that so often... I can assume that I prove my strength or ability to stand on my own two feet because it's a requirement and a rite of passage for a boy to become a man to do just that, to prove that you are fine alone, that you can stand on your own as an individual. And then you throw into that mix that I'm also an American who grew up in this culture that loves to value and celebrate independence pretty much in any form. It's a part of my very fabric which can compound and then approve of my desire to withdraw from deep relationships and from any form of dependency upon any other person. And then ice the cake with, for me and for you, we've just emerged from a global pandemic that left us less connected to other people than we've ever been before, and making it very clunky to try to reengage with vulnerability in relationships that are meaningful with people again after long series of lockdowns and isolating in place and losing that connection with other people. Now I tell you all of that uh, because it's true about me, but also because I want you to understand that there's this internal pull that exists in my own life that's there because of both internal hardwiring, the way that God made me, but also external cultural dynamics, cultural experiences and expectations that I've grown up in, and that those things together seem to naturally, forcefully push me further away from people and further into isolation further into what I'd classify as independence. And you might be different from me. However, I would bet that because we're from the same culture and we live in the same era, I'll bet we're more similar than we're dissimilar. You might say, well, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Or you might even say, I'm not an introvert, I'm an extrovert. But we've all lived through the same isolating experience, and we also all find ourselves living in an American culture that values and applauds independence and seems suspect of any codependence or interdependence in any way, shape, or form. It's suspect of those things. So for many of us, what we find ourselves doing is we have this tendency and pattern of withdrawing and feeling proud of it of withdrawing from relationships with people and connection and codependence because then we feel proud of ourselves that we are standing on our own legs. It feels even American to do so rather than in contrast to us engaging in healthy relationships, us engaging with a healthy community. In doing so, what I'm doing though by withdrawing is I'm keeping myself from one of the things that God actually created me to need. That's why this matters, and that's why I'm telling you all of this. Don't miss this. I'm saying this because both the cultural push and much of, for so many of us, our internal drive pushes us far from one of the very aspects of both what God has designed us for and what God has called us to do, which is to be in community and meaningful relationships with other people. In fact, you remember in the Garden of Eden that when God reaches down into the dust to make and fashion man in his own image, that one of the aspects for you and I of being made in the image of God is that it's communicating to us that we are relational beings. There's other aspects to it, but one of the things that it communicates is that we are relational beings who are made for and best exist in deep and meaningful relationships with other people. And if that's true, then I believe wholeheartedly, and even by experience, I'd affirm this and say that every person is uniquely wired by God to desire acceptance, to desire to be valued and to belong, and have a place to call their own, and a group of people to experience their life and unknown future with. People long for a sense of community. Now, now do you see this, though? That when we say that we're made in the image of God, it implies several different things, but one of them is that you and I are relational beings because we have a triune God who had a relationship within himself, and now we made in his image, we are designed with a deep desire for, a need for community. We're not just made, think about this, to function and operate well while remaining, or I should say it this way, We are not just created and fashioned to not function or operate it well when isolated from community because we need it. That's true, but our broken, sinful, fallen nature wars against the way that God has fashioned us so that we naturally find ourselves pushing away in selfishness, pride, and isolation. But there's a second thing God designed us to need, That's true about us being made in God's image. And that's that I am made as a person to crave and to need something that God experienced within the Godhead itself before creation. And what God experienced was not just relationship, but it was also love. Within the union of the Godhead, there was love, a relational bond, yes, of unity amongst the triune God. But also, a deep and profound love was there. In fact, the scriptures tell you that God is love. The very essence of his nature is love. The expression of his nature and character is love. But it's not nearly what God does. Scripture says, really, it is who he is. He is love. And he graciously gives it again and again and again throughout all of human history. You know, It's been wisely said that the greatest desire of mankind is to be loved. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be loved and not known is shallow. But to be known, fully known, and fully loved is a beautiful thing, I think, that all of humanity is searching for. And it's one of the greatest, not just desires, but the greatest of treasures when humanity finds it. And I think that we find just that in Jesus himself. We find that we're fully known and yet fully loved by him hear me say this, please. It's not just that we're meant to find that in Jesus. I think we're also meant to find that in the body that Jesus continues to use on planet Earth, and that's the church. That a community of other people can be such a gift to us because it's a place where we can be fully known and yet simultaneously fully loved. Remember, our greatest fear is that if we're known, people will choose because they know us not to love us. It's shallow, though, if we choose instead to hide ourselves so that they love us without knowing us. What we long for is to be fully known and fully loved. We find it in Jesus, and I think we're meant to find it in his body, the body of Christ that remains on planet Earth that God is still using. Now, that's our introduction because we're in this series, as Danny mentioned earlier, talking about God's continued work and our unfolding story as a church. God's continued work through a body on the other side of a cross and the resurrection, you remember we've been walking through Mark's gospel for over a year. And once we wrapped it up, it feels like, Mark's gospel does that it. it ends rather abruptly. So we decided we'd take a series to talk about what Jesus continued to do after the resurrection, looking at some of the moments of Jesus appearing before ascending back into heaven and what he does, but not just talking about those moments. The second thing we've done with those moments is talked about how that impacts the future of the move and work of God on planet Earth, because God continues his work through a body, no longer the body of Jesus, but now the body of the church. And so we've talked about what do these specific moments where we look at the life of Jesus after the cross and resurrection, what does it teach us about the church age, how God will move through his church? But then the third category we've looked at is what does it mean specifically though for our church as he builds our church at Olive Branch? I liked how Danny said it last week when he said that that we were discussing together what we believe God is doing in us as Olive Branch, a small but loved local expression of his global church in this brief moment in history. Now, if you are a part of our church and have been for any time, you, you might know that really our mission is to experience renewed life. That's what we're shooting for, that we're going to find that in Jesus, that we want to experience renewed life as Jesus renews our thinking, as he renews our purpose, fulfilling it now alongside of renewed relationships. In fact, we have four things that we say are kind of like targets that we aim at, and that's perspective, that's the renewed thinking. It's mission, it's renewed purpose that comes from that, and then it's community, they're renewed relationships, and that those together bring us into renewed life, which is discipleship, what we're shooting for. You see, we want to see God reshape lives here because we believe that God, or I'm sorry, we believe that the world is already shaping and forming our lives. It's not a new idea or concept. All throughout the ages, all throughout church history, people have agreed that there is forming, that the that the the world is looking to conform us, is how the Apostle Paul would write. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. The world is forming us. The culture around us is forming us. Our families have formed us. Our social media is forming us. The commercials and advertisements we watch are shaping us. But what we want is to encounter Jesus and have him reform our lives. And so we do that through those four different things that just popped up on the screen for you. Perspective, mission, community, and discipleship. Believing that we will be made more into the image of Jesus as a church community as we shoot at these targets and hold these as our highest values. Because our great goal, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're a part of a church, the great goal is likeness to Jesus. That's it. Our great goal is to be like Jesus. And the outworking, the byproduct of being like Jesus is doing what Jesus said. And he said that you would love God and that you'd love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this should neither be new information for you, uh, nor the introduction of new concepts. These things, hopefully, are what you've already seen and experienced if you've been with us for long at all. But today, we hone in on the third of these items, and that's community, to talk about us finding and experiencing here renewed relationships. And we'll do that by jumping into the story that we just read together And I'm realizing I might be in trouble because I'm on time restriction this morning because part of what we want to do is introduce you to our home group leaders because that's a huge piece of our community. So very quickly, what we'll do is look at this passage and then talk about our church as a whole, okay? So first is what happens next in the life of Jesus after resurrection, before ascension into heaven? Well, one of the things that happens next that we've looked at previously is Jesus walking around along the road to Emmaus with a group of people where he shows them that all of the scripture Scriptures have always been all about him. And he reframes what God has been doing throughout the ages as all pointing ahead to that climactic moment of a cross and an empty tomb. So we talked about perspective that week. And then last week, Danny worked you through a story in John chapter 20 where Jesus will appear to his disciples. And when he's there in a room, no longer on the road, but now in a room, he's going to tell them, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. He entrusts them with the mission. But he doesn't just dump it on them as pressure. He says, this is my continued mission in the world, and you get to be a part of what I am doing as I work and move through you. And then today, rather than looking at Jesus on the road or Jesus in a room, we find Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And if you know the story of Jesus, it almost feels like an odd development in the story as you're finding Peter and the guys not only having walked about 80 miles from Jerusalem back towards Galilee where their hometown was, It's about the distance if you chose to walk today after service all the way to Disneyland in Anaheim. It's a couple of days journey. It's not just surprising that they did that, but also that at some point when they arrived, Peter suggests, let's just go back to fishing, which does leave us scratching our heads and beginning to question, have they already given up so soon and gone back to what was familiar and comfortable for them? Because these guys still seem to be fragmented and bewildered as a group after the trauma that they endured and watched as the one that they loved suffered and died on a cross. Jesus, after the resurrection, will spend 40 days on the earth before his ascension into heaven as he would depart. And during that time, he'll appear many different places, many different times. You remember, we've talked about him appearing on the road. We've talked about him appearing in the room and now along the shores But according to 1 Corinthians 15 and according to Luke's gospel, chapter 24, Jesus at some point in time before meeting with all the disciples collectively together, he met with Peter alone. And when he had that private moment with Peter, remember on the heels of Peter, having denied him three times while warming himself at the enemy's fire, Jesus and Peter had a quiet moment together, and so biblical scholars are very quick to suggest that that private interaction becomes Jesus' private restoration of Peter back into a right relationship with himself. But now what you find in this story is Jesus publicly restoring Peter, not into a right relationship with him, but into a right relationship with the community that he is entrusting his mission to. Are you tracking with me? This isn't just about an intimate moment with Jesus and Peter. This is about Jesus publicly recreating an opportunity for Peter to now confess not just faith but love in Jesus and then to be restored to the community that he had been all of a sudden an outsider from because he had publicly denied Jesus. Now think about the creative way that Jesus does this. He recreates the very scene where Jesus or where Peter had denied Jesus You might remember that it was a public place. It was the house of Caiaphas. And you might remember it was around a coal or a fire of coals, which is just the thing that's noted here for us in John's gospel. John wants to make sure that you and I don't miss the fact that Jesus is recreating a public opportunity for Peter to find himself in very similar circumstances and for Peter to be asked three times to affirm his love for Jesus publicly. Now, the faith of Peter was clearly seen before even a word was spoken by Peter. I mean, did you notice the little detail as Olivia read the text to us in verse 7? Where it says when he realizes that it's Jesus, did you catch what he did? He picks up his outer garment, his, his coat, and puts it on in order to then jump into the water, swim to shore, and sit now soaking wet on a brisk morning along the coast of the Sea of Galilee there with Jesus. Now, no one puts a code on that I've ever met, at least, in order to jump into a body of water and try to swim with it, do they? Someone puts a code on, though, if they think that they're going to walk on water again, is what I would would submit to you, as what I think Peter's doing here. Peter sees Jesus, and I believe he's already confident that he's restored back into right relationship with Jesus. remember, he had seen him before on the Sea of Galilee and said, if it's you, then call to me and I'll come to you. And he did just that. So all of a sudden, seeing Jesus, he throws his jacket on, steps over the rail, and unfortunately sinks down into the water, and now soaking wet, trudges up into or onto the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This wasn't an opportunity for Peter now to sit down and reaffirm his faith in Jesus. I think he just showed that faith in Jesus. But this was an opportunity for him to express so much more than mere faith. It's an opportunity for him to give to Jesus what Jesus actually longs for, and that's love. So Jesus will ask Peter, do you love me? And there's significance in both the fact that he will ask him three times and there's a play on words that takes place here. The significance of him asking him three times is, again, he's recreating that same situation. He's not condemning Peter by bringing it up three times. He's giving Peter the opportunity to express love and then to be restored back into relationship with the community of Jesus' followers so that Jesus, as he does this, recommissions him, telling him, you're a part of my continued work go feed my sheep, go tend to my lambs, feed them well, he says. But there's also significance here in the linguistic form and play on words that, that's used here. In verse 15, Jesus asked him, he says, do you love me more than these? And most of us get hung up on the, what's these? What is Jesus pointing to? And we're left really only to guess. When he asked him, do you love me more than these? Is he pointing to the fish that sat in front of them on the shoreline, which were a live form of currency? Do you love me more than the security that that brings for you? Do you love me more than these? Does he point out to the Sea of Galilee and the boats that are out there fishing? Do you love me more than the security that your occupation had brought you before? Do you love me more than these? Does he point to the other disciples and ask him, do you love me even more than your friends? But the reason that that information is veiled from us is it's really that it's irrelevant from what Jesus is doing here. It's not the point of it, is it? The point is not the comparison of, do you love me more than these other things? The point is that Jesus is going to ask him three different times to give him the opportunity to express love and to be restored back into right relationship with that whole community. And so he says, Peter, do you agape me? If you know much about the Greek language, there's four common Greek words that are used to express what we just use in a single word in English, love. Now, it's a little clunky for us because I can tell my wife I love her, but I can also tell my kids that I love the Padres and pizza, and I love that the neighbor's dog left and ran away because it barked too much at night. That's not a real story. I'm not that bad. I'm happy to be a little bit vulnerable, not that vulnerable with you, but there's four different Greek words. The first one is eros. It means erotic, sexual love. But there's another one, and that second word, it's Storgate's familial love. It's the love of a father for his child. It's, it's a third word. It's Phileo. It's the city of Philadelphia. Oh, the irony of that city being called the city of brotherly love and affection. But that's what it means. It's agape. Agape is the highest form of love. It's an unconditional self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial love that gives without requirement to receive. It's the kind of love that's expressed at a wedding day because people don't get married as merely an act or expression of their love. They get married as a promise of future love. That's what this kind of love is. That I'm not just here to do this, to be married, because I love you today. I'm doing this as an act, an expression of love, yes, but a commitment of future love saying, and I promise to choose love, self-sacrificial love for you tomorrow, and the day after and every day behind that too. It's the kind of love that Jesus expressed when he said greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friend. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you have that kind of love for me? The highest form of love and commitment. And Peter responds and says, you know, Lord, that that I phileo you. You know that I have a brotherly affection and love for you. And then Jesus tells him, well, then feed my lambs. Jesus asks him a second time, do you agape me? Do you have the highest form of love, this unconditional love and commitment for you, Peter? Do you have that for me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, you know I oh you. You know that, that I have brotherly love and affection for you. And Jesus tells him again to tend now, not just to feed the sheep, but to tend the lambs. It's beautiful imagery when you think about it, just for a moment, side thought is that it's beautiful imagery that this is what it looks like to serve people in the church. This is the role of a shepherd in a church. is not just to teach and feed, but it's to tend to and care. And that's the terminology that Jesus is using here for Peter, recommission him to gently get in the lives of people again and care for them patiently and gently. And then Jesus will ask him a third time. He says, Peter, do you love me, though, with the phileo, the brotherly kind of love that you're claiming? And again, Peter responds and says, oh, Lord, you know that I have that kind of love for you, that phileo, that brotherly love and affection. And so then Jesus tells him, then go and feed my lambs. Remember, he asked him three times not to condemn Peter, but to give him a public opportunity to profess more than mere faith. He's given him the opportunity to publicly express love for Jesus and then to, because of that, be restored back into the community of Jesus' followers. And I love how Jesus finishes it. Because then he looks at him and says, Peter, follow me. He finishes with the same invitation that his relationship with Peter had begun with. The invitation to follow him. Now, that's what happened in Jesus' story, but what has that meant for the church, the church, capital C, throughout the ages? Well, the church has, has been wise to recognize that this moment creates a grace-filled atmosphere where Jesus extends grace to people who failed, where Jesus treats failures as if they've never failed, where even those who become leaders in the church are still broken and sinful and fallen, even in public settings. This is not a religion that Jesus is starting where you have to discipline yourself so thoroughly that you then earn your position to serve him or to lead. It's that Jesus just extends it by grace. In fact, the church throughout the ages has always recognized that the church exists, that God continues to work through a body in order to bring exaltation to God, edification to the saints, and evangelization to the world. That that's the purpose of the church, exaltation, edification, and evangelization. And the church has long realized that that mission and task is possible because of this grace-filled atmosphere. That we can do this because he's welcoming the weary and the broken. He brings us in by his grace, restoring the Peters of the world, bringing grace and hope to those of us who are failures and broken. That's all of us, but including us in what he's doing. And then not placing the weight and burden of what he's doing in the world on our shoulders. No, he's inviting us into what he's doing. This is his mission, as we talked about last week. And he will now begin to accomplish his work by the power of his Holy Spirit through us. You know, I I love people. I really do. And, uh, and everywhere I go, it kind of drives my wife crazy. I really enjoy being with people, talking to people. I know I'm an introvert. Uh, typically, a small setting, like I went into the dry cleaners last week. And I interacted with the guy there who I've talked to many times over. He's from Iran. Uh, he's been through so much. And then because of that, became a refugee here. Even my interaction with someone like that, I don't take it as a burden of I need to expose this person to Jesus. I've been in there a dozen times probably over the last couple of years. But this last time I was there, he mentioned just in in passing, because they said, oh, it's nice and cool in here finally. And he said, oh, thanks be to God. And I said, you're a person of faith. He like cracked the door open. So I kind of kicked through it. It's like, tell me about your faith. And I start to hear from him about all the brokenness that he's seen religion create. And then I began to talk to him about the beauty of what Jesus has done, that we're fully known and yet fully loved by him, that the Bible tells me I'm far worse than I'd imagined and yet simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed, that that's the gospel. And the man just told me, I've never had someone speak to me like this. And it's not because my words are powerful. It's just because it's the simple gospel message. And for me, I didn't feel the weight and burden of, i got to close the deal because if I don't... It's God's work. If I plow, plant, or water, it's him who brings the increase. I jokingly told someone last week that I prepare and I preach as if I'm an Arminianist who believes that it all rests on my shoulders. I sleep like a Calvinist on Sunday nights, though. It's amazing because I believe this is God's work and his mission, so I don't bear the burden of the work and feel the responsibility of it, and you're not meant to either. But the beauty is that even the work he entrusts us to do by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's entrusting us to do together. And that's something the church has never lost sight of throughout the ages. The church has always known that what he's entrusting you to do, he does not require that you do it alone. He instructs instead that we do it together. In fact, the only time that you are asked to do anything alone in the scriptures is believe, because only you alone can choose to do that. Everything else that he will ask you to do in the scriptures, there's a you in Greek that's singular, you, as we would use it in English, but there's a you in Greek that's plural, it's y'all in English. The commands that are given in the New Testament, instruction to the church, are given in the context of y'all. That y'all are gonna do this together. That if you have in your mind the weight and burden of being a part of what God is doing in the world because you feel like you're shouldering it alone, well then you've missed the beauty of the fact that Jesus has entrusted it to a community of people, that we get to do it together, that there's a plurality here. It's Jesus when he gives the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, where he tells them, he says, go into all the world making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The command there is not to go. The command is to make disciples. But the, the comment there to go is beautiful because some translations will translate it while you're going. The idea is while you're living, do this. But it's beautiful because in linguistic form, it's a second person plural. It's telling you go together while you go together, make disciples. And when you baptize them, that is the act and action of bringing them into the community, of publicly recognizing, yes, they follow Jesus, but they've left their old life to be a part of a new family, this community. Listen, the church has always known that he does not require you to do this work alone. Instead, he instructs us to do it together. Now, what's that look like here? So Jesus, what we found him doing on the shores, this graceful, beautiful moment where he brings Peter back into the community that he will now recommission, and then the church, capital C. But what about for our church, Olive Branch? Remember our core values, something we often refer to as targets, those four things, perspective, mission, community, and discipleship. We believe they kind of feed on each other. If I have the right perspective about God, myself, and the world around me, It will compel me to engage with the world in the mission of God for the world that I live in. Because now I'm seeing God, myself, in the world correctly. And now my heart longs for them to know him and to be known by him. My friends, you are the ministers in this process. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God has entrusted some to be apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The ministry is yours. My responsibility and role is to function like a coach or a cheerleader. Please leave the mental imagery of me as a cheerleader out of your mind. But I'm meant to function that way to equip you and then cheer you on because he's entrusted the work of the ministry to you. Now, what that means for us is that the success of this church is not so much based upon what's said, sung or done here, The success of our church is truly based on what you choose to do when you leave here because you are his ministers in a broken world because we have been called and given the opportunity to do this together. Oh, we gather to worship God, but to be equipped, we gather to effectively scatter into the community around us. Our gathering is not the barometer of how we're doing in health or success, nor is it the end goal for us as a church. All of us, I mean, what if we live this way? As if all of us, as followers of Jesus, are ministers and all of us are ambassadors. And that ministry is no longer seen as a program nor a profession, but recognize that it has always been a call, the call for every person who names the name of Jesus and follows him. The beauty is that God hasn't called you to do anything alone except to believe, because only you alone can do that. Everything else he invites us to do together through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. It's beautiful that God doesn't intend for any of us to fend through life alone as a person or as a follower of Jesus. And as we discussed as we began, for many of us, those people, we think a mark of maturity is independence. My ability to stand on my own two feet, no longer needing others to get by and constantly needing to prove to myself that I don't need them by pushing far away. Do you see what that does though? The cultural pressure that we live in You see what it does for us? It leaves us so afraid or at the very least hesitant to voice any struggle or any problem or any pain because we're afraid that we'll be viewed as weak and it will be viewed as weakness. And so in order to be viewed and perceived as having it together and as being strong, we struggle and we suffer so much of the time in silence, which only make things unnecessarily more difficult than they should be. I mean, it's an odd thing when you really think about it. Like, why do we think a mark of maturity is spiritual independence when we aren't designed to function that way and aren't intended to navigate our life or our faith alone at all? In fact, when you think about it in the New Testament, spiritual maturity looks different from suffering in silence because of our pride. Scripture says the mark of maturity or the fruit of God's Spirit being at work in your life is what? The fruit of God's Spirit at work in my life is love which means that we're only as spiritually mature as we are sacrificially loving other people. So if you want to know if you're spiritually mature, look at the love in your life and ask if it costs you anything or if you only choose to love those who are easy to love. Because it's the fruit of God's Spirit is that we love self-sacrificially. And real love is not affirmation from afar, It's sacrifice that pulls the needs of another closer to you and chooses to put their needs higher than above your own. That's what real love looks like. And in a community, this is what we mean when we talk about community here, our desire is that we want to invite people into a community where they can learn to follow Jesus and then commit to carry out his mission together. And I will tell you, I love the beauty of what God has done here in this community, I love your commitment to Jesus, but so appreciate that you're not just committed to Jesus, you're committed to his bride, the church. You're committed to one another, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, when you think about it, we're we're forgiven and rescued by Jesus. And when that happened, New Testament authors tell us that we were then made in that moment members of a kingdom, a colony of heaven living here on the earth. We are also made not just members of a kingdom, but members of a family that we've been adopted and are loved, known and loved by God. But then we also simultaneously are connected to a body. And each of us is a different part that functions in the body of Christ. Each part being different, but each part being important. Think about this. God is entrusted. That means each of us with a gift. And although he gave it to you, it's not for you. It's for them. God's given each of us then a gift if we're a part of his body, but the gift he's given to you is not for you. It's for someone else. The gift he's given you of helps or hospitality or service or giving or discernment or wisdom or exhortation or prophecy or mercy or encouragement, he didn't give you that gift simply to you for you. He gave it to you for someone else. My hope is that you would know the gifts that God by His Spirit has entrusted to you and that you would come here every week that we're together prepared to give that gift to somebody else. I love what God has done here, building a community. I'll tell you though, without a mission, a gospel community has the capacity to devolve into nothing more than an inward turn codependent gathering, which leaves it being, yes, a nice thing and a good gift to those on the inside, but far less than it was created and intended to be. Mission is what takes what can become an inward focus and constantly shifts it outward and shifts it forward. And so here at Olive Branch, we're not a Reformed church, although we love and celebrate the sovereignty of God. We're not a Pentecostal church, although we love and celebrate that we believe that the gifts are still for today. And we are not a church that's following an attractional model where we want to do whatever we can to make our church polished and attractive. We're simply choosing instead to be a relational church, which means we don't have the bells and whistles, you might have noticed. We even have standard deaf projectors still which we might need to address eventually, but we have a very, very simple ministry philosophy that is the byproduct of us intentionally being a relational church first and foremost. And at the center of that ministry philosophy, you'll find our home groups. Because for us here as a church, we believe that we may learn in rows like you are right now, but we believe that you best grow in circles. We might learn in rows, but we believe you might best grow in circles seated with other people in our home groups. Because of this, our desires for everyone who considers themselves a part of this church, our desire then is that you would be connected to a home group because we believe it's where you experience the great gift and blessing of being known and loved inside our church it happens inside of a home. And so our home groups, we think of them as the heartbeat and the lifeblood, kind of the backbone of our church. In fact, we tell people often we are a multi-generational church of home groups, not a church merely with home groups. Now, I want Miss Ruth to throw an image on the screen. I just want to show you this really quickly, and then we're going to segment into having the home group leaders come up and quickly introduce themselves. Uh, there's a book entitled The Search to Belong, where this author, Joseph Myers, he begins to talk about the way that people uh, live their lives relationally. He takes the work of someone else who was an anthropologist and a cross-cultural researcher, and he begins to apply it to the church. But what he does is he takes the work of this anthropologist who talks about how every human being has four different spheres of relationships in their lives that are very valuable and very, very important that we'd be best to try to fill with someone. The first is a public sphere. That's a group of 20 or more. This is your larger friend group. And then a social group. These are more the people that you actively spend time with, though. And then a personal group. These are your closest of friends, the two to three. And then an intimate. For many, if not all of us, we long for an intimate partner that we can experience everything with. Now think about how Jesus then, Miss Ruth, you can hit the next one. Think about how Jesus functioned. Jesus had the group of 72, the Gospels tell us. Jesus then would spend time with the 12. Jesus then had the three, Peter, James, and John, that he was often seen pulling away with. And then Jesus, his intimate relationship with his, was his deep connection with his Father. Now, I'll just tell you, for us as a church, The way that we function, and again, very simple, relational, Jesus-loving Bible churches, how we explain ourselves, we seek to exist in those top two tiers. There are lots of churches that will do so many different things and have so many different programs that will reach into these other areas that I think are great, but it's not currently what our church is doing. Our church is simply existing in those top two. Our Sunday gathering is that public sphere. But then our home groups is the, the creation of that social sphere, presenting that for you. We believe then, for our elder team, that flowing out of those two places, especially out of the home groups, becomes the personal sphere, the deep and meaningful relationship that maybe you're longing for, we think is the byproduct of you being, yes, with us here, but in a home group there throughout the week. And we don't have control over your intimacy with the Father, but we believe that we can help to foster it by feeding you relationships that can take with you or can walk with you to go deeper together. And so for our church, there are people who ask at times, well why don't you do more than just home groups? Well, it's intentional because we believe flowing out of those home groups are these personal and and powerful relationships that are the byproduct of those gatherings. So again, this is why we don't have a midweek Bible study. This is why we don't have any more gatherings throughout the week at all that are a come and listen approach. The rest of what happens is home groups where you sit in a circle because yes, we learn in rows, but we think that you grow, best grow in a circle together. So events like our upcoming Women's Brunch or Guys Night Out that is looming, they have the goal in the end of cultivating relationships for you so that you feel comfortable finding a home group that's a good fit for you, that it helps you to find your way into those spaces because all of these things feed into what we believe God has given us as a model, but also we believe is the model that we're embracing as a church right now to be a simple, Jesus-loving Bible church who's leaning into relationships rather than leaning into presentation or an attractional model. You know, it's interesting. You can close your Bible because I'm going to turn it over to Danny in just a moment. It's interesting, we're in this really unique era in human history where sociologists are starting to recognize that this is the first time in contemporary history where you have four generations that are working together. Have you thought about this? Four generations are in the workplace together. Because of our modern healthcare, which is an awesome blessing, people are living longer and choosing then to work later into life. So now you have baby boomers intermixed with Uh, Generation X, who are also now shoulder-to-shoulder with millennials and have now found Gen Z inside their workplace. And it's funny because if you look up articles on this topic, because I'm seeing them more and more, what they're saying is that employers are finding it incredibly difficult that although these four generations are working together, they can't work and get along at all. (laughs) And when you think about it, it's because there's such different values and ideals that those generations hold, aren't they? And it's because baby boomers came out of a time of intense crisis. And you've seen a lot more life in the world than some of us have. It makes sense that we have these different eras and segments of time. It it makes sense that it's difficult. Can I tell you the first thing I tell people that I love about our church, though, is that those four generations are represented here and that you get along. I was away this week. Oh, that is worth clapping for. Um, you know, my intro about like, you know, I'm an American, I'm a male, I'm an introvert, and I'm all of these things, and so it's easier for me to withdraw. So this week, I, I went away for the week with a group of young pastors to be with two older pastors. It was a sweet time. I looked for any reason to get out of it because I'm the introvert who wanted to withdraw and doesn't want community at times, but it's good for me. But as we sat together and they were asking, what's the thing you're most excited about your church? I told them, the thing I'm most excited about is not just that our church is multi-generational, but our home groups are that it's such a gift and blessing in the lives of people that we become the church, not just ours, but the church becomes the one exception to four generations who are working together but can't work together. That we become four generations of people who work together and love each other. This last week, so on Friday, I went to one of our home groups because there's a young couple in our church who haven't even been married a year, but they wanted to get baptized and were out of state when we did our church baptism. So I went and crashed it. And the young man, a newlywed, who began to share before he got dunked in the water with his wife, he just began to thank this group of people saying, you know, some of you, you have children our age or even older than us, but you've welcomed us, you've listened to us, you've spoken into our lives, and you've loved us. In front of him are baby boomers, Gen X, he's the Gen Z, I'm the millennial pastor wiping a single tear. Because this is the unique beauty of what's found in the church that I don't think people can can create outside of it. The beautiful gift of community. The culture we're surrounded by is saying four generations are working together and it's not working. But the bride and body of Christ, the church, can be the exception to that because we share the same father and the same mission and because we choose to treat others as more important than ourselves, placing their needs above our own, which is a beautiful thing